welcome to my office. I'm Carrie Lorenz. Thanks for joining me in conversations with fearless leaders from around the world to discuss the mechanics of high performance, success, and even failure, and what it takes to achieve more than you ever thought possible. Through the conversation ahead, I hope to challenge, inform, and inspire you to move fearlessly to higher levels of performance and to go further, faster. And that conversation starts right now. Stepping into my office this week is Dave Robinson, the founder and CEO of Vertical Performance Enterprises. Dave is a senior executive and a retired United States Marine Corps Colonel with over three decades of experience leading complex organizations. He's also the author of the new book, The Substance of Leadership, a practical framework for effectively leading a high-performing team. Dave, welcome to my office. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Oh gosh, I am thrilled. And I have to tell you, I know what the trials and tribulations are when it comes to writing a book. So congrats on your new book on the substance of leadership. Uh, I'm super fired up about it. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you for your mentorship, uh, for help guiding me through the process. I had a manuscript and I wasn't sure what to go, where to go then. And I was in unknown territory. So thank you for your help. Well, we're navigating a little bit like to uh, somewhat educated field mice, I guess we'll say. <laughs> but like I mentioned in the intro, you've been in the leadership space for quite a while. So why was now the right time to write a book about leadership? Well, it's a great question. I, I gotta be honest, you know, I transitioned from the military to the private sector about a decade ago, 2011. A friend of mine asked if I could speak to a group of executives on how to lead a high performing team. And you know, that really um, is one of those things that you kind of feel like you know how to do, but to be able to articulate that is a whole new challenge. And so I signed up for a 45 minute speech and then I realized, Carrie, as, as you know, how hard it is to real, really succinctly get your thoughts together in a shorter period of time and, and, and be concise. But it was a great exercise because it really forced me to think about what it takes to lead a high performing team. So I shared that with a group of executives, honestly didn't know how it would land. I had my reservations about uh, everyone, you know, at the end, just standing there staring at me, but it was very well received and gave me some confidence. But the bottom line is it, it led to a number of other similar conversations, speeches, talks with executives. And so, you know, I never dreamed or thought about writing a book. And then a few people, uh, you know, after a few of these talks came up afterwards and said, have you written a book? And I'm like, I haven't even thought about it, but thanks for the vote of confidence. And one thing led to another, doing some leadership development work with, uh, with other organizations in many, many industries. And I found that the parallels between leadership in the military and leadership in the private sector, are very similar. The mission might be different, but people, the people challenges are very similar. And I just felt like uh, there were so many leaders out there that were struggling with where to focus their time and energy. And so I, uh, I felt like uh, I wanted to put my, my story in a book and hopefully it was something that will benefit others that are struggling with that burden of leadership. Well, and Dave, I know you you haven't said this, so I'm gonna kind of back it up just a little bit, just so, so everyone who's listening right now understands a little bit more about your background. You're a former United States Marine Corps fighter pilot, former Top Gun instructor. You are a colonel. You've flown over 3,500 hours in the F-18 Hornet, which is a ton in the fighter pilot world. That's uh, that's a lot of seat time. You've got over 200 uh, aircraft carrier landings, which is also a lot, 100 combat missions. And you were also awarded the Bronze Star Medal for supervising over 20,000 combat missions and more than 2,000 medical evacuations while serving as the Director of Air Operations in Iraq. That's a huge mouthful. 
that's also a very, very deep and wide pedigree or, or bucket of experience. And, and I think you're also the, the uh, strategy director for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, correct? Well, I was one of many, but I was a project director for the chairman. That's right. So got exposed to a number of different projects that help us you know, shape the budget and the strategy for the Department of Defense. Sure. So when you look at all of those different various experiences, how do you think your military background prepared you to help prepare leaders in the corporate space now outside of the military? Well, one of the things, Carrie, that it, that it, ways that it prepared me was um, just the example that, that I saw others set as a junior officer growing up. And, you know, I think we learn by seeing more than we learn by listening. And I, I had some great leaders that I was privileged to serve for and to, and to work with who really set the example. In fact, my book is dedicated to all the Marines I know who set the example. And admittedly, many of them carried me on their shoulders. And so, you know, I learned so much about some of the, the basics of leadership. Some of those blocking and tackling skills, I, I like to refer to it as being brilliant at the basics, uh, which is a great quote by uh, Vince Lombardi. Uh, and I know you're familiar as being from the Green Bay, Wisconsin area. So, you know, that's that's uh, one of the things that I that I love. But more importantly, I think it's putting those principles into practice. Uh, when I look back at some of the crucible moments in my military career uh, as a commanding officer, just the number of decisions, uh, complex problems, uh, challenges, the amount of accountability that you have for lives of the people that you know serve in your command as well as their families and ultimate accountability for mission accomplishment and that's what really honed my perspective on leadership gave me a perspective about uh, how hard leadership is and that's where my heart goes out to others in the private sector who are struggling with many of the same challenges and just hope that some of the things that i've learned in my journey can be helpful to them absolutely so you've come up with what you know what i've shared with you as well what i think is an extraordinarily straightforward and actionable model in in your new book can we just talk for a second about how not necessarily just how you came up with this but your leadership triad the culture people and the mission and where some of the genesis of that is and even if you want to break down some of those three buckets that would be awesome yeah i'd love to well as I alluded to earlier, this all started when someone asked me to try to share my leadership thoughts about how to lead a high-performing team with some executives. And, um, you know, I, I started looking at this issue or this, this topic through the lens of being a follower. And so as a follower, uh, many of the teams that I served on and observed, uh, what were those traits, characteristics of leaders that were able to lead exceptionally high-performing teams? And so I just started putting some thoughts together. I had journals and files that I had kept over the years and there were some also some teams that uh, you know didn't perform as well and so those are went into the things not to do uh, bucket if you will and so then that began began to refine that with my experience uh, you know leading teams myself which uh, you just mentioned a, a few of those experiences and being a commanding officer was was probably uh, some of the most important of those formative experiences and uh, then when i was a commanding officer of an air group i had nine squadron commanders with you know, roughly 200 people or so that were reporting to them. And I had the opportunity to share uh, advice, mentorship with them uh, on, on things that I thought were important for them to succeed as leaders. And so I got to see kind of third party, third hand from an outsider looking in some of the techniques and, and things that they were able to apply, which really helped to sharpen my perspective. And then having spent a decade in the private sector working with leaders, that really began to pull it into focus. And so that's kind of the, the, the journey of the four lenses that I used to come up with the leadership triad. 
But after all of that um, synthesis, if you will, I landed on three, what I feel are the most important focus areas as a leader in order to lead a high performing team. And those are culture, those are people, and then your mission. And I really feel like as, as leaders, particularly in today's world where we are just bombarded with so much information, it's so easy for things to get drowned in the noise. But if you can stay focused on your culture and the cohesion that holds your team together and keeps everyone rowing in the same direction, so to speak, and you can focus on your people and really take care of them, and then you can get them excited about your mission and really stay prioritized on, on your primary mission, that's the key to leading a high-performing team. Let me pause there. I'd be happy to unpack each one of those. And I've also in the last decade learned some other ways to connect those three focus areas together, which uh, which has really been fascinating. For sure. Let's let's chat culture for a second, if we can, uh, because you've operated and led teams in extraordinarily challenging and extreme conditions, as well as really what people don't understand sometimes is exceptionally diverse backgrounds. It's, it's a melting pot when you're working with these big, multi-integrated, cross-functional teams. And I think it's one thing to just talk about a culture of high performance, and it's quite another to actually be able to not only define it, but then also be able to lead a team through really changing and challenging conditions, whether it's the environment, the threat, maybe it's through acquisitions or even high turnover within your team. So. How can people think about connecting your culture to your mission, where it's not just ping pong tables and you know what time you show up for work, but, but how do you actually build operationally connecting your culture to your mission? Yeah, you know, I've, I've worked through this with a number of executives who are struggling with that very question. And one of the most effective ways that I found, Carrie, and I always like to walk executives through is something I call leader's intent. You and I both know from our background that every commanding officer publishes a philosophy of command. And mm -hmm. I'll be honest, I was very hesitant, skeptical when I was required to publish my first philosophy of command as a squadron commander. Number one, I, I wasn't sure if it was really going to make that much of a difference. Uh, number two, it was really hard to put on one page what I felt was really important about leadership. And number three, it was really hard to throw it out there for the entire unit because once it's on paper, uh, you know, you are now accountable for everything that you've written, but it was one of the most valuable things that I've ever done. And so I've encouraged leaders to use this concept of a leader's intent, which in my mind outlines, uh, you know, five basic topics. And, and that is, first of all, what is your mission? And when I talk about mission for me, that's the task, that's the what we need to do and the purpose, that's the why. Uh, and, and that's really important. The second piece is your vision. Uh, for me, that's what's a success look like? Um, what, what, is, what is a picture of that desired end state, if you will? And then it's important to uh, define your values because for me, your values are the heart of your culture. And then we can talk a little bit about your goals and priorities. That's kind of what we need to achieve as intermediate milestones. And then the final piece of this is what are your expectations for yourself as a leader? What kind of leader do you want to be? And then what are your expectations for those in your on your team, uh, you know, in terms of what expect, expectations do you have for them? But this is a way to, number one, take your values, which in many ways defines your culture, those mindsets and behaviors that you expect from your team and very clearly and succinctly connect it to the mission that you're trying to accomplish. And I found this to be a really valuable exercise to help generate alignment within teams 
to allow leaders to really get their head around what really matters to them and to use that, that compass uh, that we all need to come back to when we are faced with really complex, difficult, challenging decisions. We come back to this and say, you know what? I wrote it, I said it, I believe it, and I'm gonna do it. I would imagine oftentimes even for you that just to do that, and you know that that exercise is coming down the pipe, but it's a moment of vulnerability. I mean, you know, and I know we've all been there where you're waiting to see what that commanding officer, that leader, what their one pager or their two page commander's intent is going to be. And yet as, as well as, and I think you've done a beautiful job in laying, laying that out and what the benefits are and that it helps you clarify not only where you stand, but what does success look like? What are the standards? What are the values? How you are going to operate as a leader? I've found, and I'd be curious to know if you has, have as well, that oftentimes with the leaders that I work with from in leadership development programs or executive development programs, when you ask them to do that exercise, it's like fear, right? Deer in the headlights, because one of the, one of the first biggest pushbacks is we don't have time for that. Everybody knows what we're going after, which is simply not true. And, and I also think is it exposes that layer, peels back that first you know, layer of the onion of vulnerability, because no different than writing a book or getting on stage in front of somebody or standing up in front of a room and leading. Now it's documented. Now it's on paper. It's funny you say that, uh, Carrie, because that's exactly what I see. In fact, I have broken this up into chunks where I encourage them just to fill it out in, a, in an outline format, just throw in a few bullets here and there. Mm -hmm. And what I love to do is I love to get senior executive teams together and, and do this together as an exercise. We'll walk through those five sections together. Each one of them fills in three to five bullets, uh, takes about no more than five to seven minutes, top of mind, uh, you know, and then share with the group. And it's really amazing, as you alluded to before, everybody feels like, well, we all know what everyone else does. Can't tell you the number of times the chief operating officer has looked at the chief finance officer and said, I had no idea you did that. And then someone else would look at one of their colleagues at the table and say, why are you doing that? Because that's in my, my, my lane, my swim lane. So don't get in my lane. It's a really powerful alignment exercise. It's a really powerful clarification exercise. Then I encourage them to turn that into uh, a paragraph format and keep it on one page so that they can get their team on the same page, so to speak, and then to share that with members of their team it's also a great filter for people that are they're hiring into the organization to make sure that they're a good fit culturally, that they align with the mindsets and behaviors of that organization. Right. And I think probably, you know, it raises on um, both an individual level and a group level, the understanding the position that you're coming from and those things, the way that filter that you see what success looks like. Have, have you run into a period of time where, or an instance where, you did that, where you personally did that in a leadership position, and you got pushback from somebody where they were like, yeah, that's, that's not what we're doing here. Or that's going to cause, that's going to cause some heartburn or too much of a ruckus somewhere. Well, you know, if there was pushback, uh, it probably stayed beneath the surface because I mean, one of the <laughs> things about being a commanding officer is that, you know, there's the hierarchy in the military. And so right. there was probably some rumbling uh, that there's no doubt, but I think First of all, it's important to get alignment with your boss to make sure that you're not putting something out there that's misaligned with, with your boss. But once you have that alignment, you have that high cover, so to speak. Um, I think the only pushback is people wondering, OK, let's see uh, how he or she is going to respond when they face the first test. And so that's right. why I encourage leaders, if you're going to put this on paper, 
you better make sure that you really believe it because when push comes to shove, you need to make sure that you have enough conviction to actually do what you say. Because if you don't walk your talk, your credibility will be undermined from the very beginning. So that's really important. Well, and this is where I think you you also shared though that when when you're developing your intent, when you're when you're in that messy middle, if you will, of of trying to put together that draft that you actually, you, you go and you solicit some feedback, whether that's from members of your team, uh, some of your colleagues, members of your community that may be able to identify some blind spots you had, my, those are my words, but uh, give you a really valuable perspective that you make sure that it's not just all encompassing as, as in it serves everybody, but that it's going to be as effective of a final version and that it actually communicates clearly and concisely what it is you're trying to accomplish, right? Which goes back to the power of the leader's intent. And I didn't mean to hijack, we, I know we were just talking about culture and the triad, but I'm glad you brought up the leader's intent because again, I don't think people are taking the time right now, that reflective time, because we're all getting pulled in a million different directions that we just assume organically everybody knows what our leadership intent is. And, and that is not necessarily true. And when we're working in such a tumultuous marketplace, when the speed of innovation and change is so fast, that is when we no longer are minding the gap because we haven't even taken the time to identify it at the outset. Yeah, for sure. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I've learned, Carrie, is, uh, and I know that, you know, you know this as well, People tend to rise to the standard that's set for them. And yet I find so many leaders don't take the time to really clearly articulate what those standards are. And then when leaders hold themselves to that standard, or I, I recommend an even higher standard, that's really where the power of connecting your culture to your mission uh, and then getting your people inspired about that mission, where it really all comes together. Right. I, I know far too often I see people, it feels like, you know, the phrase of the day is we have to innovate, we have to move fast, 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 but we're confusing we're confusing the the speed of inf innovation and the pace of change with putting in there, it's okay if we skip the preparation piece, let's just go, go, let's move fast, we have to innovate. So when, when we're looking at the culture piece, can you share any lessons learned around that idea, even culturally, or the mechanisms, how you can really share within your team those lessons learned or or helping them prepare for tomorrow's opportunity through the preparation piece when i um, talk about culture uh, people often ask me how do you develop a high performing culture and for me the center of gravity of a high performing culture is trust and so then the next question is well how do you develop trust on your team and i, I honestly think that it really starts with the leader um, and, and I, I talk about the three C's. I talk about a leader who has character. And for me, the most defining characteristic of character is integrity. And that's doing the right thing is how I always used to translate that. And the second C is competence. And, and that's, you know, being good at what we do and knowing our stuff and leading by example. And then the third C is, uh, is all around composure. And that's how uh, we handle ourselves, our demeanor in difficult situations under adversity, because as leaders, the tone that we set uh, in many ways, determines how our team responds to adversity. Within those, you know, three C's, if you will, when you talk about a, a culture of innovation, when I think about developing an organization that is uh, that is really great at innovation, 
those three characteristics still seem to play out because it's all about uh, empowering others to uh, not be afraid of failure, right? Because we go back to that level of that idea of trust. When you have a culture of trust and, and I lead with character, competence, and composure, and therefore you can trust my intentions, you can trust my actions, you can trust my emotions. That creates an environment where we have a psychologically safe space. And then the best ideas come out. You mentioned earlier, we're, we're in a world with, with uh, and both of us came from backgrounds with very diverse people. And there's so much strength and power in diverse perspectives, getting all of those perspectives to the table where they feel comfortable sharing those and feeding off of each other's ideas. And my experience is really the spark of an innovative culture. So when you were a young pilot coming into your squadron, do you remember and and this isn't dropping names or dropping call signs or anything, the commanding officers, whether they were in your squadron or in an adjacent squadron, who were able to really straddle that line of competence and confidence, but didn't tip over into the arrogance space. It's one thing to have some swagger. It's another thing to be an overconfident jack wagon. <laughs> My words, not yours. <laughs> How do you see that translating? How do you see the people who have been able to do that? What do you think is the magic in doing that? Jerry, I think, look, when I was, when I was a junior pilot, I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, from your perspective as well. I mean, I really knew nothing about flying a tactical airplane in combat. And so the, the commanding officers that I flew with or was aware of that were the most effective leaders, um, you know, professionally, tactically, ethically, and, and you name it, they really did two things. First, uh, they were committed to competence, tactical and, uh, you know, competence in, in the way that they flew and prepared for every mission, the way that they executed. But it couldn't stop there. Uh, they were committed to self-improvement. And so you put those mm -hmm. two pieces of the equation together. I am going to be the best that I can be at, at my core mission. And I'm going to be committed to self-improvement every time that I go out and execute the, that mission. For a junior pilot who was a sponge trying to learn everything that he possibly could, I gravitated toward those COs who started the debrief with, I made this mistake, this mistake, and this mistake. Because then Dave Robinson was willing to say, ooh, I made a lot more mistakes than that. In fact, when I was an instructor, uh, I used to start out many debriefs, tough debriefs that didn't go very well for the student by saying, I have failed more check rides than you will probably ever fly. And it really just, you know, begins to, to, to bring the tension in the room down where now we establish a learning environment. That's the kind of CO that I wanted to be, that I wanted to fly with, and everyone else in the air group wanted to be in their squadron because they had a combination of competence and humility. What's hard though, I think for people and, and I would say, including myself, even when I came into that very, very junior role of where you know you're just thrown in and it's still a fire hose is that when you run across those people who don't lead that way and they're still in a position of power that then how do you straddle that line if you know you're supposed to be the one who's offering up the mistakes you made or what you're seeing but then somebody else can say well you're just making excuses and you're like I'm actually telling you what I did wrong <laughs> Yeah. Right. That it that that can be a challenge, I think, for some people. And I also think that culturally at times, and I'm not just saying this within aviation, but culturally at times, I think we've confused the, the confidence and competence piece and, and thinking that one, that confidence comes before 
competence. So I know the leaders and the mentors that I really appreciated did exactly what you did. They said, hey, I made this mistake and I can fix it. Or they led with it, right? Because they had skin in the game and they said, these are the mistakes I made. And then then you've taken the elephant off the table. The elephant's no longer in the room anymore. But if you start off that debris for that conversation, and you're trying to get to a place that's more valuable than where you are right now, and people's defenses go up right away, then that's hard. But you and I both know that there's a way to manage that. And with growing this culture of high performance, growing this idea of always striving to develop yourself and and your team is through effective feedback. And that feedback that inspires your team members to embrace higher values, better values, uh, a more positive attitude, staying curious. And then that reinforces those, those cultural norms and behaviors that you said that you wanted. Can, can we talk a little bit just in, again, I, I apologize if I'm bouncing around. I've got, you know, I've got the majority of your book, I think is highlighted for me, which almost renders it ineffective because now I just have to keep rereading it and rereading it. And I'm going to have to move on to post-it notes and dog ears and all of that stuff. But again, you've so beautifully articulated so many of these really foundational elements of high performance and leadership and have made it spectacularly accessible to anybody who, who wants to read this. But can we talk a little bit about that feedback loop or, or the style with which you can, uh, give feedback or even receive feedback that's going to generate a more positive outcome? Going, going back to um, what we were just talking about um, in terms of competence and confidence and that humility of being vulnerable and, and admitting your mistakes. When I was a Top Gun instructor, one of the most important principles that we uh, followed in every debrief is what we call taking the who out of the debrief. Because you know we knew that, uh, and I knew, that if someone pointed the finger and said, Robinson, you screwed that up, that uh, his deflector shield is going to come down. He's probably going to be listening to what you say, but not hearing a word that you're saying. And it's just not going to lead to any learning. Uh, If we set the tone that we're here because we want to improve as a team, we want to be better tomorrow than we are today. And oh, by the way, you can trust that I have your best interest at heart. And that's why we are having this debrief is because I care about your performance. Then we've already made, uh, you know, great steps toward establishing that, that feedback environment where we can both learn. What I didn't know then, but I learned as a result of writing my book is the neurochemistry behind that. And I'm probably mm-hmm. preaching to the choir here with, with you and, and many of those in your audience. But you know, it became readily apparent that when we feel defensive because we're attacked psychologically, those same uh, fight or flight mechanisms kick in, cortisol floods our brain. It can take up to 24 hours for that to go back down to normal levels. That's the deflector shield that I just talked about. I knew it then, but now I understand why. You know, one of the most positive ways to start the debrief is to make sure that you know that I trust you and that you know that I, you can trust my intentions. Because when you get the idea that I don't trust your intentions, then that's where the cortisol begins to flood the brain again and just might as well stop the debrief. So I think this is really important in feedback to make sure that our people, when we're providing feedback, know that we're doing it because we both want to get better that I'm open to feedback just as much as I'd like for you to be open to feedback. And when we share that, we're going to share it in the context of making sure that we know we have each other's backs and we're trying to improve as a team, not to make it personal, but to make it productive. 
Yeah, you shared a, a pretty colorful story that I think really underscores that point and, and what it's going to take and how we get back into the present moment so we don't panic. You're going to have to expand on this because I'm not going to get all the details right, but it was a story about when there was a large mob forming outside of a gate uh, on one of your bases and you were the one in charge and how you had to manage that feeling of panic if you will, and what was happening. Do you remember the story I'm talking about? Yeah, I can remember like it happened yesterday. <laughs> I, I, fig I figured you would. I didn't want to give too many details because I figured I'd probably gob them up. But um, mm -hmm. I remember my heart racing and a lump in my throat as I was even reading it going, this is not good. So I, I, I use this story to illustrate that third C in, in the culture that I just talked about, and, and that's composure and how as leaders, you know, we, we really set the tone for how our team responds under, under, under adversity. I was uh, what was called a battle captain in the uh, Tactical Air Command Center in the Marine sector in Iraq, Western Iraq, in 2006. And we had a geographic area about as large as, uh, twice as large, really, as my home state of South Carolina. So quite a large area to cover with medical evacuation missions and other close air support and some other air support activities. And one afternoon, uh, I was looking at the video feed from the drone overhead of our, our base and a large mob was forming outside the front gate. Then looking in the distance, I could see two white sedans a couple of miles away coming toward the front gate at high rates of speed on, on two dusty roads. And so almost immediately, we started getting mortar fire on the north sector of our base where a lot of our helicopters were parked. Almost immediately after that, you know, normally we had one troops in contact or firefight, you know, at a time at that particular point in 2006. We had six at once erupt throughout the entire battle space. And so now I've got a mob at the front gate. I've got two vehicles speeding toward the front gate. We're taking mortar fire uh, with all of it. We're all the helicopters apart. I've got people screaming for air support and medevac missions times six over the radio. This is one of those vulnerable moments. Uh, you know, I, I started to sense the urge to panic. And I had a flashback to three years earlier when I was sitting in a combat leadership lecture by uh, retired Lieutenant General Hal Moore. And he was a commanding officer uh, of, a, of a battalion in Vietnam. And there was a movie made about his book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young. Mel Gibson played uh, Hal Moore. Some of your audience may have read the book or may have seen the movie. Highly recommended. It's, it's, it's great. But I remember when General Moore said something to us. He said, if you, if you remember nothing about what I say today, remember this. There will come a time if you're in a combat leadership situation, I don't care how strong you think you are, when things will start going so wrong, lives will be on the line, that you physically and emotionally will start to sense the urge to panic. And when that happens, take a deep breath, remain calm, and do your best to make the most of the bad situation, because if you don't, it's only gonna get worse. And I realized, Carrie, that I was in that moment that General Moore was talking about three years earlier. And so I huddled up my command team and I said, look, we are running out of medevac resources. We don't have enough air support to take care of every problem on the battle space. I need you to be innovative, going back to your point about innovation. Be innovative, be creative, think outside the box, do it quickly, keep me informed so I can have your back with higher headquarters. Number two, before you key the microphone and start directing air traffic, Take a deep breath, because if they sense that we're panicking inside the command center, it will spread like wildfire throughout the battle space. That team of very young Marine captains made some amazing decisions very, very quickly. Uh, low flyby over the front gate with, some air, with an aircraft that was a little bit, uh, had a little extra fuel. You know what an aircraft supersonic at 100 feet does to a crowd, right? It scatters the crowd. The sedan stopped. 
it was a suicide attack. We averted that, quick reaction force took over. Uh, we had some other Cobra helicopters fly over the area where we thought the mortar fire was coming. That stopped for a while and gave us a little breathing room. And then uh, a Marine captain, a, a woman, had a four-ship of cargo helicopters. Had never been done on my watch. Asked them to set down in the middle of the desert, set up the security perimeter, took the cargo off, and used them to assist in the medical evacuation mission and saved dozens of lives as a result. And, I, and when I tell the story, I say, I, I, I wish I could tell you we saved everyone that evening. I can't. But I can tell you that we made the most of a bad situation, and I have always tried to pay it forward with every leadership lesson from what General Moore taught me that day. That's just amazing. And it's, you know, I think that's understanding. And when people hear that, because I think too often people can assume that whether you're a high-performing executive, you're a, a top athlete, right? You're an elite elite athlete, you're a fighter pilot, you're, you're any one of these, what could be construed as something amazing or otherworldly, that people just assume that you don't have fear, you don't have that feeling of that moment of panic that sets in. But I think the differences in people who are able to navigate those situations is that no different than what you were able to do. You recognized it for what it was, Yes, you know, it's a threat and you're very quickly able to refocus on what's under your control, right? I call it span of control, yeah. but then go right away into solutions oriented mode, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not depersonalizing it to the extent that you're not feeling the feelings, if you will, because it's not about that. It's not about shoving down that feeling. It's about being able to address it, acknowledge it, but don't let it neurochemically hijack your ability to make a good decision. I think it just is so uh, illustrative of how quickly when you have that tool set, when you have the situational awareness, even to understand that you're in, you're in a bad spot right now, you have to click over to being solutions oriented so that everybody else doesn't start falling apart around you either. Yeah, for sure. And you know, uh, the other thing I take away from that is, um, yeah, that was a mentorship moment for me. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, General Moore didn't know at the time, you know, as a leader, the impact you have on other people. And just the fact that, as you alluded to, I was aware of what was happening and it was normal. And, you know, to be able to share that with other people in the command center that were feeling similar things and to try to help them understand, let's, let's manage this and let's not let our anxiety spread to others and let's just do the best we can. So it was just one of those, uh, really one of those moments that I'll, that I'll never forget. So how do you, when you're looking at this, and even when you're looking at your framework, when you or a team member or somebody you're working with is finding themselves in that moment of adversity or overwhelming change, throughout both your military experience, Dave, and also now in civilian life, how do you now recognize not only what that looks like, but how do you measure how people respond to it? And I don't mean from a KPI perspective, I mean, generally, just from like a performance perspective. When I think about adversity, I think the first thing is just a mindset that you realize, admit bad things are going to happen. Uh, it's an it's inevitable. I I reminded my team many times, sometimes weekly, that bad things are going to happen. Bad news doesn't go away with time. Uh, you know, you, you need to uh, realize that they are going to happen. But the question is, what do you do about when it does happen? And if you can look at adversity as an opportunity to lead, not as something to avoid, but as an opportunity to lead. And I think there's tremendous value in building resilience into your team and helping that to be a learning and a leadership moment. 
uh, where they can actually learn to become even a higher performing team. And so one of the ways that I measure, uh, you know, how leaders deal with and how teams deal with uh, adversity is just, you know, the demeanor and, uh, and, and they're just visible reactions. We all can get emotional, but how you handle that emotion when bad things happen, I think is really critical because I think true character uh, shows up in adversity, right? It's easy to, to display great, uh, put this in air quotes, you know, great character when things are going well, but what kind of character do you demonstrate when things are not going well? And so I think that's the true, uh, you know, test of a good leader. And then at that point, I think it comes down to just how do you respond and how do you handle the situation? For me, the most effective leaders, uh, and I've, I've learned this the hard way, I, I didn't always handle, handle it this well, but I learned one of the most effective ways to, to handle this is just to say, okay, uh, thanks for bringing me that news. Let's talk about what you're doing about it. And then once we get through that, let's talk about what we're going to do to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. So if you approach it as a learning opportunity, make the most of the situation and, uh, and work together to solve the problem, as opposed to that knee-jerk reaction, shoot the messenger three or four times, people stop bringing the boss any news whatsoever, right? Because it's, it's one of those reactions that they want to avoid. Oh, for sure. When you're in those moments or you're in the depth of struggle, do you have, do you have a personal mantra that helps you combat any negative uh, self-talk or even self-doubt? Or is there like an anchor phrase that you go back to? You know, I think there's probably two. Uh, you know, I always, a lot of my commanders that reported to me used to start every phone call or every bad phone call that negative situation adversity with, sir, you just can't make this stuff up. So, you know, that, that was kind of a way to, uh, to put a little bit of a, of, a, of a real perspective on things. And sometimes when bad things happen, I'm like, well, you just can't make this one up. My second comment to myself was always, every adversity is a, is a, is a training opportunity or is, is a learning opportunity. So if we look at it as it's going to happen, uh, what can it make us a better leader? What can we learn from it? Uh, I found that that's one way to, to try to deescalate the, the natural emotional response. Right. Right. I know it's funny. One, one of the things that, uh, you know, I've shared before is that oftentimes, particularly, uh, after maybe really big exercises or, or a pretty aggressive flight, once people ended up in the O club, you knew things were about to get sporty when the phrase popped up of, so there I was 500 knots out of gas. And you, yeah. Like, you know, it's about to get bad. <laughs> Whatever comes, that's like the preface to, you can't make this up, right? <laughs> right yeah. um, exactly. The fighter pilot's equivalent of hold my beer only maybe operating a little bit faster. Do you find a particular when you're looking at your triad or even in the research that you did for your book, the last you know 10 years of even working in the civilian sector, is there a part of the triad that you think is more challenging than others? Or do you give them all equal weight from an implementation or an execution perspective? Yeah, uh, really great question, Carrie. Um, I spent a whole chapter in my book talking about the importance of balance and balancing mm -hmm. these three areas. Um, you know, I feel like maybe the organizations, the teams that I've worked with from startup uh, all the way through, you know, full life cycle companies, I think um, it may not necessarily be the most important. I think they're all equally important, but I think sequentially it's important to get your culture right first, because I think your culture is the foundation that drives how your people see your mission. And so I think it's really important to make sure that leaders get tight around what type of a culture they aspire to and what it's going to take to create uh, that type of culture. And and I think that uh, character, competence, and composure are, are three really great places to start from leadership qualities. But it's interesting that you ask this because I don't find any one of the three areas 
uh, harder than the others. I actually find the tension between people mm. and mission to be the hardest tension to manage. And I find that for a couple of reasons. First of all, the way that we are wired, um, have a lot of clients that I do the Myers-Briggs personality assessment with. I've done that a number of times myself. And at the risk of oversimplifying, many of us are wired toward being very task-oriented, mission-driven types of people. Others of us are uh, tend to be very people-focused. And both of those are good, but sometimes, you know, is it mission first, people always, or is it people first, mission always? Uh, the Marine Corps says mission first, people always. The bottom line is, I think that they both need to be focused on and we need to manage that tension in our own way. Because if you focus on the mission at the expense of your people, pretty soon your people are gonna leave uh, if, if they can. And if you focus on your people at the expense of the mission, you might have a bunch of really motivated people, but you're not really achieving what you're supposed to achieve. And so I think managing that tension for, uh, for leaders in the triad is what I found to be most difficult. So then when we think about that people part of it, so let's think about somebody who is junior to an organization or, uh, you know, in our case, maybe junior to a squadron, or maybe you've just moved from an individual contributor role to a manager role, or you're an entrepreneur just starting out, but you have to still answer up to somebody. Maybe it's maybe you're a franchise, you know, opening up a franchise. How does this help or how can you help people conceptualize this idea of how do you influence up? So if somebody, you know, a whole team picks up your book and they're all reading it, they're all book clubbing this thing to death. They've got their highlights, their dog ears, their stickies, and they're like, okay, but now we actually know part of the choke point is up the pipeline. Mm -hmm. How do we influence up and not lose our jobs? Influencing up is hard, isn't it, Carrie? I mean, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's one of the topics when I do leadership development work with teams uh, that, that, you know, they, it's, it's normally one of the topics I cover toward the end of the syllabus. And they're like, can we do that now? Because everybody's really interested <laughs> in how they can, yeah. how they can influence their boss. You know, I think it's, it's a little bit personality and, and situational dependent. Um, but I would say that I think it starts with having, you know, an honest uh, feedback loop and, 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 and candid conversations where, for example, if, if I'm reporting to you, Carrie, and I'm, and I'm trying to influence you, you know, uh, the relationship and that trust level really matters here. And to the extent that you, I can understand what your priorities are, where your head is, you can understand how I'm trying to support that. It's a lot easier for you to be influenceable, if you will, if, if you know that my heart is in trying to, uh, to do the best that I can uh, for the organization. And so whenever I want to try to uh, influence you to, to maybe uh, say yes to something that, that I feel is important to do, to the extent that I can point out how it supports the overarching goals of our team, of our organization, it's hard to say no to that. And to the extent that I can uh, help outline uh, the pros or the gains, uh, as opposed to the cons or the risks, if the gains out, outweigh the, uh, the risks, obviously, then that's kind of hard to say no to. Another way that I found to be very effective is to adopt an unless directed otherwise mindset. So in other words, yeah. my mindset is, Carrie, if I feel like I want to do something, rather than come ask for permission, uh, or in, in some cases, don't ask for permission and then beg for your forgiveness when you say, Robinson, that was really stupid. Uh, maybe I preempt that by saying, Carrie, unless directed otherwise, I intend to do X, Y, and Z to solve problems A, B, and C. Now, you have the option to say nothing as long as I know that you got my message. And I'm, I'm like, okay, cool. Silence is consent. You might say, hmm, have you thought about this? And then I might be like, no, thank you uh, for bringing that up. Or you might say, 
Robinson, I've seen this rodeo a million times. Let's come talk about it. And I might be able to share some, some pitfalls. So that's, that's one technique that I've uh, I found to be, uh, be very effective. The fourth technique that I found to be helpful is something that I was very reluctant to do early in my military career. I wish that I would have learned this much sooner. This is a tension that I feel with, uh, I, I, I experience with junior leaders in, in the private sector right now and in multiple industries where they feel like whenever they go in to brief their boss on something, they have to have all of their homework done, every potential question answered, it's analysis through paralysis. And you know what, they get to the table and the boss was like, I really wish that you would have looped me in and just asked for my opinion two weeks ago. I could have saved you a lot of time and effort here. And it's an opportunity missed. So the extent that we are willing to problem solve with our boss, and I bring a problem to you and say, Carrie, have you ever seen this before? And you were mm -hmm. like, yeah, so let's problem solve together. And that helps you to feel like that you're part of the solution. I enjoy that as a, as a more senior leader, being part of the solution without micromanaging. And it really helped to develop that trust that I started talking about earlier. Right. And this doesn't mean that you're giving permission to people to just keep bringing all the problems to the boss or the senior leader, because obviously then it's going to be, you know, you're going to start getting turned around. That's like, hey, bring me a solution. There's that integration of, hey, here's I'm bringing to you what the challenge is or what the problem is. Maybe here are three points that I've identified. What am I missing or what's the choke point or help me see this differently or I don't know how we're going to get there from here. And it's it's in those micro moments, I think, and even in the conversations and and even the ways you've you've done a great job and a beautiful job in, in your book, even giving some, if you will, fill in the blank mad lib opportunities that if people aren't sure even how to have that conversation or where to begin or the turn of phrase that changes that conversation. It's in those small moments that you build the trust that then allows you to develop a better feedback loop. It's all one big system, if you will, whether it's the, I say it's, have you considered that your, your pushback, if you start with, have mm. you considered that that is very de-escalating. Now, mm. I wish I would have known that 25 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. I didn't, I didn't have somebody telling me that. That's what I, I hear is uh, your equivalent of, have you thought about, hmm. right? Because it creates that space and not in a touchy-feely woo-woo way hmm. of we're problem solving. We just have to get this figured out. Here are some solutions. Maybe they don't see this. So we're just going to ask if they thought about it. Hmm. Uh, but it gives people that room to move. That's such an important point. And if I could just uh, just pull the thread on that just a little bit more. So if I'm bringing something to you, uh, asking you to help me problem solve, I can tell you what will be dead on arrival. And that is, Carrie, I have this problem. What should I do? That's how not to start the conversation, at least in my recommendation. But if I came and said, hey, Carrie, I have this problem. Here's how I'm thinking about it. My recommendation is X. And I've also considered Y and Z. Based on your experience, what am I missing? And then you get to come back in the form of a question and say, have you considered or have you thought about instead of you didn't think about because then the deflector shield just came down. But you you basically uh, you know introduced that with a question. And now we are thought partners and we are problem solving together. You feel like you're part of the solution, guiding and shaping it. I feel like I'm actually getting mentorship and help from my boss. And I found that to be a really powerful way uh, to influence others. Absolutely. So obviously, you've had a really successful career. And you've transitioned uh, very well and very effectively from from having a very successful military career to now 
working and developing leaders in the civilian space. What role do you think failure has had in your journey? Well, um, failure is hard, Carrie, especially when you're when you're junior, right? And you're trying to build confidence from your competence and you're you keep making mistakes. And so it's hard to develop confidence, but you feel like you need it. And so sometimes I think we overcompensate for that early in our careers. I've failed so many times. I've failed so many flights. And um, as I look back, it's, it's easier to look back now and reflect on what I learned about it. But as I look back, what I learned along the, along the way is to have empathy for others uh, who are you know, experiencing similar uh, adversity. Sometimes they have their own crucibles in different areas of their lives. They have a lot of challenges in their personal lives that I, uh, you know, maybe couldn't relate to or didn't have, but we all have challenges. We all have our own crucibles and our own adversity. And what it taught me was to have a real heart for people who uh, are struggling with um, leading. People are complicated. Leadership is hard. Uh, you know, targets keep moving. Uh, the challenges can seem like they're just overflowing sometimes. And it has really helped me to have a heart for helping leaders succeed. And that's really what, you know, uh, I enjoyed most in the military was helping leaders at all ranks uh, from non-commissioned officers up to more seniors officers succeed as leaders. And for me, it was an act of service uh, to try to help them uh, and mentor them. And my success could be measured in how successful they were. Similarly, in the private sector, um, you know, helping business leaders uh, you know, overcome their leadership challenges to help them simplify it and, and overcome some of the many things that I learned the hard way is, is really my passion. And so failure has taught me that um, leadership is hard and it's really given me a heart for helping others. Well, and it seems like you've brought that, that inflection point, I think, of, of being able to reflect on that experience to really understand that people, again, this is pretty simplistic, but people are really complex. And to figure out when we're trying to figure out a, a way to lead better and that everybody is getting pulled in a lot of different directions right now that, you know, I think as Brene Brown says, clear is kind. I just always try to say, we, we have to be working to clarify the complex all the time. That doesn't mean that we're disregarding the sophisticated nature of the way we're doing business right now or the complex and real problems. But if we want people to be effective and to be the change makers that we know they can be, and with diverse teams, diverse groups, we have to be the ones to clarify the complex so they can take action on that. Yeah, I love that. Couldn't agree more. Um, I'm going to ask you a quick question that I'm sure people are going to be thinking about because I know it's something I always think about when I even think about your background. Is there ever a moment in time in your flying career that you thought to yourself, this is it, this is scary? This is burned in my memory. Well, there were a number of moments, as I'm sure you have your own moments, where I'm like, I get back and I land, and I'm like, glad I lived through that one, right? I mean, there were a number <laughs> of uh, really scary rendezvous at night uh, that I can remember. Uh, I can remember being in Anchorage, Alaska, with you know, 100 airplanes airborne. I had a brand new wingman that had like five flights uh, in, in the fleet total. I told him just to hang on my wing, and uh, 50,000 feet, we do a a vertical maneuver and I look up and we're going like, you know, Mach one point something. He's literally carry five feet from my wing. And I, I got fixated on trying to tell him to give me a little more space. And as I see the mountains pulling up, I'm like, I hope I can get out of this one and trying to turn an airplane at Mach one point something. Uh, that was one of those times when I landed and said, 
yeah, I'm uh, glad I'm, I made it through that one. And yeah, then of course yeah. there were the many night carrier landings with a pitching deck and the the weather just uh, like you know how do you even do this that uh, that well I will I will never forget. So um, thankful though that um, you know had great wingmen and, and and people to to fly with and to serve with and and it was just a, a real honor and a privilege. Oh my gosh, I know what a great opportunity. After after reading your book and and looking at the tools and thinking about you know the teams that I'm even working with right now. A question I would have for you is, how do you filter out the unnecessary? Do you have an app? Do you go old school? Do you write your priorities down on a legal pad? When you are working in a chaotic environment now, that's not in a cockpit, how do you filter out the unnecessary? Great question, Carrie. Um, I think it starts with your purpose. I think so many times we try to uh, do things just because we think activity is going to get us the answer. When in reality, uh, you need to take a step back, go up to 50,000 feet and ask, ask the question, uh, what is our purpose? What are we trying to achieve? Not only the what, but the why behind it. And then I found it valuable just to do some mission analysis. It's the most common step that people leave out of uh, filtering out the unnecessary because we always tend to jump from here's the mission, we got our purpose, here's the mission, now let's go right to solutions. But if you don't take a little bit of time to understand the landscape around that mission and your purpose, what are some of the factors that might drive your decision-making? What are some of the intangibles? What are some of the atmospherics that could come into play? Analyze the mission and then begin to look at what are the most critical actions that can get you from where you are to your purpose, considering all of those atmospherics that you've uncovered in your mission analysis. I think if I uh, if I had to try to summarize for you, that's what I what I would recommend. And that, folks, is the answers to the test on how can you navigate all that chaos and tumult and still go at one and a half times the speed of sound, right? <laughs> it goes through the preparation piece again. Hmm. I mean, it feels like table stakes. People want the easy button. That's it. That's hmm. the answers to the test. It's the preparation. It's taking a look at at what's happening you know, keeping that situational awareness, line it up with your mission, and then go and figure out what's working and what's not, right? Because I, I always say at the end of the day, we don't want to leave success to chance. So there's, you know, there are some frameworks you can use, some tools that helps you then very, very quickly leverage those tools to make a better decision in a really chaotic or stressful situation. And I For think sure. you've done a beautiful job in your book, sharing those and distilling those, those lessons, Dave, it's just fantastic. So I have one last question as we talk about teams and then I'm going to, if it's okay with you, do a couple of rapid fire kind of uh, fun questions. Sure. Can you speak to just a second and share some of the wins that you saw working with really diverse teams? Because I feel like even that phrase right now, when we talk about diversity or diverse teams can swing so politically one way or another, and it shouldn't be that way. What continues to uh, be amazing to me is how powerful and strong a team of very diverse people with diverse backgrounds and diverse perspectives can really sharpen a solution. In my book, I talk about uh, one of the most powerful lessons I learned in the private sector was from a biotechnology company I was working with. It really helped me to clarify this, this uh, concept, this idea between What's the difference between alignment and consensus? Because so many mm -hmm. times as leaders, we strive for consensus because we feel like if everyone agrees with us as a leader, 
uh, we all share the same perspective, we're all marching toward the same goal, that there is no better, you know, example of leadership than, than that. I found that that could be, you know, nothing further from the truth. Because in reality, you're missing out on all of the diverse perspectives that could have really allowed you to come up with an even better solution that you were even thinking in your own mind. And the more senior I got, the more I realized that if I could define what needs to be done and let the people figure out the how, people with very different perspectives, backgrounds, experiences, it was always a better solution than, than Dave Robinson could have come up with. And so the, the, the real challenge for leadership is to be able to influence a very diverse group of people who are seeing the problem from different perspectives and to get them to be aligned toward the goal for the right reasons, but to be comfortable sharing those perspectives so the team can benefit from all of those diverse perspectives and sharpen each other. And someone will bring up something that someone else hadn't thought of. And if they can be vulnerable and humble enough to say, you know what, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. I, I think that we should go with that solution. It just makes the team so much stronger. Absolutely. Are you game for a few, uh, a few rapid fire questions that I promise you have uh, unless you throw it in there, absolutely zero Top Gun references. Sure. Yes. Uh, I'm, okay. I'm, yes, I'm ready. Okay. We'll see. All right. So, what is your go-to music you listen to when you work out? I normally listen to audiobooks. That's kind of a boring answer. So, sorry about that. <laughs> Not the pump up jam I was expecting, but <laughs> I love audiobooks. Audiobooks <laughs> and good podcasts, highly underrated. Yeah. Um, who do you think of as a mentor and what did you need to learn from them? You know, one of my uh, lifetime mentors has been uh, retired Colonel Art Athens. He was a captain when I was at the U.S. Naval Academy. And what I learned from him is just what impeccable the character and integrity looks like. And uh, he has, uh, for whatever reason, invested hours and hours of his life into helping Dave Robinson be all that Dave Robinson can be. And I couldn't be more grateful or thankful for people like him, but particularly uh, just a shout out to to Art Athens, who uh, has just been a wonderful human being to me and thousands of other people. That's fantastic. What is the biggest misperception of you? I don't know. I'd have to probably say that, uh, you know, there's the serious Dave Robinson and my kids will tell you that there's a really silly side of Dave Robinson. And so that might be one of the most uh, misperceptions. Um, I try to keep them from posting those on social media, but uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't always work. I don't know. You may be viral on TikTok, but if you're not yeah. on TikTok, you actually wouldn't know it. Right. <laughs> Unless one of them rolls up with a brand new car and a sponsorship, then you'd be like, wait, wait, what? And then yeah. they show it to you. That's right. So yeah. two more super easy ones, uh, I think. Who plays you in a movie? Someone who someone's never heard about. Oh, good answer. All right. Yeah. So we have $100, a full tank of gas and the day off. Where are we going? $100, a full tank of gas, and a day off. I say we go to Key West. Ah, there you go. We'll find a Blue Angel Air show. How about that? Yeah, you, can have, uh, you can cheer for the Marine side, and I'll cheer for the Navy side, and everything yeah. will be right in the world. That's right. David, if people want to get in touch with you or follow your journey, where can they find you? Well, I'd love for people to check out my website, verticalperformance.us. Um, if they're interested, I have a free download of chapter one of my book so they can get a preview. And um, I also have um, what I call the performance pressure test for anyone who's interested in finding out uh, some ways to help them become a more effective leader, uh, help their team become a high performing team. Uh, I'm so excited. And just as another foot stomper, and in case people have kind of missed it, or now this is your last chance to write this down, your new book is called The Substance of Leadership, A Practical Framework 
or effectively leading a high-performing team. And I would be remiss if I did not add that 10%, I think, of your net proceeds are going to be donated to the Semper Fi and America's Fund, which is a veterans charity dedicated to aiding combat wounded, critically ill, and catastrophically injured members of the U.S. Armed Forces and their families. And if that's not a big enough hook to get people to buy the book anyway, then I don't know what is. <laughs> but I I thank you so much, Dave, for taking the time. I'm like I said, I'm really excited about your book coming out. I will be buying it for some of my clients mm -hmm. and probably my kids as well, because uh, I think it's going to be extraordinarily helpful. And I am so grateful you shared your time with us today. Thank you, Carrie. I can't tell you what an honor it is to, uh, to talk with you. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for your mentorship and for your endorsement of my book. Sincerely appreciate it. Uh, you are very welcome. Glad to have you. And thank you so much for listening this week. If you enjoy the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you enjoyed the conversation with Dave today, I'd love if you left us a review so that more fearless leaders like you can discover us. It takes less than 60 seconds and it really makes a difference. And I also love reading the reviews. And while you're at it, I'd love to hear from you personally on my social channels on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You can always find me at carrielorenz.com. And as always, my new book, Span of Control, is out in the world and available on Amazon, iTunes, Audible, Target Online, Barnes & Noble, and your favorite indie bookstore. I'm super excited about this one. As you know, I think it's going to be super helpful to you on both a personal level and can even help your family members, your friends, your teams you lead or coach to really identify their priorities, find focus, navigate obstacles, and find success even during times of chaos, uncertainty, and change. So thank you for sharing your time with me today. I'm glad you're here.